For the month of December, we're going to be putting our verse-by-verse study of Ecclesiastes on a temporary hold. We'll start that back up in the new year. But the Christmas season brings with it a great focus on the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be examining that joyous occasion through a slightly different lens than you might be used to looking at it through. So turn with me to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written by a group, uh, was written to a group of Israelites who had heard the gospel and had received Jesus in faith. As people of the Hebrew heritage and participants in that old covenant law of Moses, they had been waiting for a Messiah. God had told them through the prophets that he was going to send an anointed one who would become the king who would reign on the throne of Israel forever. So they were waiting for a Messiah to come. And once they heard the good news about Jesus Christ, they believed that Messiah had truly come. What a gift that God had given to these Hebrew people. For generations, they had been struggling to keep the law. They had been seeking the forgiveness of God because over and over again, their own actions proved that this law was too great for them. They couldn't keep it perfectly. They were constantly bringing sacrifices to atone for their sin. They were constantly struggling and battling against their tendency to fall into temptation. But now suddenly, God had done the unimaginable. God had come to earth. He had taken on flesh. Jesus was born miraculously of the Virgin Mary, and he had walked this planet just as we walk the planet, sharing it in our experience in every way, in every way except for one. Jesus ate like we eat. He slept like we slept. He had to deal with cold and hot, fatigue. But unlike us, he never gave in to the temptation to sin. So while every human being, without an exception on earth, is a sinner, Jesus is the one exception to the rule. He kept every bit of the covenant of works absolutely faithfully from the time he came to earth to the time he left it. So Jesus never owed a debt to God. There was no judgment upon his shoulders. This made it possible for him to voluntarily offer up his own perfect life as a suitable sacrifice for God's people. By suffering and dying like a criminal, like a sinner, and then raising from the dead on the third day, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant law for anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. No longer would they have to be punished for their sins because Christ had put their sins to death when he suffered on the cross. And this group of Hebrew believers trusted in that salvation. Unfortunately, they soon discovered that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not as easy as some think initially. Jesus had warned his people again and again that to follow after him was a major commitment, that it wasn't some small thing. When we give our lives to Christ, we give him our everything. And then he also told his people that by putting their faith in him and identifying with his name, that there would be divisions, that there would be persecutions, that they would suffer wrath because the world in its sin was going to reject Jesus the Messiah. So some of these Hebrew believers, they believed in Jesus Christ, they, they gave him their lives, and then they realized that suddenly half of their family wouldn't talk to them anymore. Some of these Jewish believers found that when they went back to work on Monday, they didn't have a job because they identified with Jesus. And many of the Jews believed that Jesus was not the true Messiah, and so they rejected those who accepted him as the Messiah. There were divisions, there were hatred, families were split in two over Jesus. And so many of these Jewish believers, under the pressure of this persecution and hardship, were in danger of abandoning the Messiah. 
They were tempted to go back to something easier, something that they knew, something that they were familiar with. They had been worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, before the Messiah came. Perhaps they could go back to that old way of worship and not have to deal with all the pressures of being identified with Christ. Anytime the human conscious makes a concession to weakness and fear, we tend to do the best we can to justify those decisions in our own minds, don't we? And so that is exactly what these Hebrew believers were starting to do. They were rationalizing in their minds. Their thought process probably went something like this. Our people have listened to God's prophets for many, many years. We know that for 400 years there has not been a prophet. John the Baptist broke that silence. But they had lived according to the things that were written down. The book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these prophets had informed their way of life. By listening to and respecting God's prophets, they had obeyed his words the best they could. They weren't perfect, but back then when they were just listening to the prophets and reading those Old Testament scriptures, life was so much easier. Those prophets had received their messages from angels of God, so of course the things they had to teach were true things, good things. Couldn't they just go back to those old ways of life and not have to deal with all this pressure and all this division? Before Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, they had been offering other kinds of sacrifices, physical lambs, hopefully to atone for their sins under the law of Moses and the Levites. And they could go back to that, couldn't they? They weren't giving up on God entirely. They were just going back to an easier way of life, a more socially acceptable way of worshiping God. And there were still priests of the tribe of Levi that could act as mediators and facilitate those sacrifices. They had been in a covenant with God for centuries. And so in their minds, they're thinking perhaps they had made a mistake in changing from the old covenant to the new covenant. Was this desire to return to the old covenant a serious problem? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. What the writer of Hebrews is saying in that one little verse is how shall we escape the judgment that our sins have earned if we neglect this great salvation, this Jesus Christ, this one sacrifice that can once and for all atone for the sins of mankind. Friends, there couldn't be a more serious problem than their desire to go back to Judaism. To turn their backs on Christ would be to turn their back on the one Savior that they needed to atone for their sins. And though all of the old covenant pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice, that sacrifice was not manifested in the old covenant. The anonymous writer of this book, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It might be Paul. It might be Apollos. Some say that it was Luke. It doesn't really matter because ultimately God is the author of all Scripture. So as the anonymous writer of this book is determined to help these Hebrew believers see that it would be a huge error for them to turn their backs on Jesus and to go back to living like Jewish people. To turn back to the old ways would be to indicate that they didn't understand and value the true salvation they had in the Son of God. He's even greater than the very gifts that God had given to Israel, the covenant people, up to that point. And so the superiority of Jesus is crucial to the author's persuasive argument here to these Hebrew believers. The writer of this book is going to systematically address each of the familiar methods through which God has interacted with the Jewish people. Angels, 
priests, covenants, sacrifices, and prophets. Each of these are a way that God has spoken or interacted with his people. The author of Hebrews is going to show us how Jesus Christ is the greater and better fulfillment of each of these gifts. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see that in the old ways of the old covenant were not bad. There's nothing wrong with them, but they were not enough. Jesus Christ is categorically better than each of them. Today we're going to consider our view of angels in comparison to the greater messenger, Jesus Christ. The word angel simply means messenger, but the messengers we're talking about specifically this morning when we say angels are the angelic beings that God used to reveal his truth to the people. So we're in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verses 1 through 4. We're going to be taking kind of a binocular-style look at Hebrews. Normally we go through Scripture a few at a time and look at it under the microscope. That's our preferred method of teaching. But for this series, we're going to be taking a bigger-picture look. So we're going to look at several verses through the first two chapters of Hebrews today, starting with verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We see here in the opening to the letter that God has been at work. Man has not been created and then abandoned by their spiritual father. God has made man, and then throughout history, though man has sinned and tried to run away from God, God has continued to pursue a right relationship with man. He has intentions to save, and he is working out his plan flawlessly to accomplish these ends, which will result in immeasurable blessing for his people and appropriate glory for himself. Verse 1 explains that God has been revealing divine truth through mediators. He specifically cites the prophets here. The prophets spoke to the fathers of Israel, giving them direction, helping them to understand what kind of a God it was who had made them, and how they were expected to interact with him under the covenant of Moses. These mediators have helped God's people to walk by revealing what they needed to know about the plan. Not all of the plan was revealed to them. To be honest, not all of the plan has been revealed to us in the New Testament. There are many things that God has yet to tell us or show us. But what they needed, God gave to them through the prophets. But in a in, the, in recent times, as this letter is being written, a shift has occurred, an important shift, a change of cataclysmic proportions. And the recipients of this letter need to understand its magnitude. Now that the old covenant law was in its last days, the use of prophets and of divine revelation by angels was coming to close and was being replaced by an even better communication from the Lord God. So in the Old Testament, communication came through prophets, as they were spoken to by the angels, the messengers of God, they delivered that message to the people. In the New Testament, communication has changed now. It is being delivered through the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So rather than go through a mediator, God has come and taken on flesh and has spoken to us directly. In a few weeks, we're going to zero in on how Jesus is the better prophet. But for this morning, let us consider the words of verse 4, where Jesus is declared to be the, so much superior to the angels who gave insight and knowledge to the prophets. Let's try to understand how the Old Testament believer and these Jewish believers in the very beginning of the New Testament, how they saw those angelic figures. To the Old Testament faithful, angels were first and foremost terrifying to them. They were terrifying to them. When they saw an angel, they knew immediately that they were looking at something supernatural. When I say supernatural, I mean something that exists outside of the framework of the natural world that we live in. Something that can't be explained by the laws of nature. And so, for instance, when Moses is, is walking with his sheep in the wilderness of Sinai, and he sees a bush that is on fire but not being consumed, and a voice starts to come from that bush, he's terrified because he knows that God is doing something. He is intervening in normal life, and he is about to experience something supernatural. We often see those who experience uh, interaction with an angel as falling to the ground, face down, in a posture of humility. They often believe, they cry out that they're going to die because they know that if they see the living God, that their imperfections will instantly cause them to be killed, being in the presence of God's perfection. So there is a, a great reverence and a holy fear that comes when somebody interacts with an angel. Secondly, these angels were mysterious to the people of the Old Testament. Though they were not completely unheard of, from time to time God would speak to a person through an angel, they knew very little about what these angels could do. They knew very little about their personal lives. Most of them did not have names, so they, they might be identified. They often seemed to be outside the laws of nature, so everything we know that we've observed about the world didn't necessarily apply to these angels. They lived beyond that. Sometimes they would appear and then disappear in a moment's notice. Other times they would show up in a form that didn't quite make sense to these natural people. We know that these angels were viewed as being very powerful. These angels were sent of God, and God is omnipotent. God can do anything. And so those agents of God were seen to wield a greater power than man yields. Not only because they're not bound by physics, but because of the God who had sent them, the sovereign ruler of the galaxy. If, he, if these angels were an agent of God, then there's no telling what kind of power they might yield. And of course, these angels were seen as representative. They were not there to tell the story of angels. They were tell, there to tell you what God wanted you to hear. And so they came as a, as a mouthpiece, as a messenger for the Lord. That's why they would often revealed to the prophets, thus saith the Lord, and share God's revealed word. And then the prophets would take that and give it exactly in that form to the people who needed to hear it. So there are so many different examples of angels showing up in the Old Testament. We see angels with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned for the first time and been cast away from the perfect presence of God. We see angels delivering under much duress Good word to Daniel to help him understand prophecies of things to come, things that were written down for our good and which explain to us some of the things that we could expect in the end times. We see angels appearing to Moses in the burning bush. We see angels 
appearing on the road to conquer the Holy Land, we see an angel appearing to Mary and another to Joseph, telling them that God would be using them for some very special purposes, that through the Virgin Mary, a little child would be born, and then that child would save the world. Because of their close association with God, these creatures drew great interest, and the Israelites who believed in them often became fixed on them. Colossians 2 provides evidence that some of these Jewish people had too high of a view of angels. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his senses. So what's talking about there is that many of those in Colossae were teaching false things. Some people were overemphasizing the role of angels in the life of believers and were saying that you needed to worship angels. They were saying that you needed to revere them and give them glory. And, and Paul is correcting that. He's saying that's the wrong way to look at angels. Angels are not the object of our worship. To worship anything beside God is abject sin. It is a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. And there's nothing short of idolatry. Now, this is not exactly the same threat that we have today in regards to our understanding of the station and the importance of angels, but there are some parallels. People don't typically worship angels in our culture today, but have you noticed that many people who consider themselves to be interested in spiritual things but don't really understand the gospel and, and their knowledge of God is not rooted in the, in the Bible, they're often very interested in angels. They usually have a fixation on them. Guardian angels that perhaps protect, almost like a good luck charm or some sort of a personal spiritual bodyguard. They might say they've had dreams about angels where angels will speak to them and give them directions on where they're supposed to go in their lives. Some claim to be able to just speak outright to angels. Others are under the impression that when we die... We become angels. These are all ideas that are not from Scripture. They were generated outside of Scripture by popular ideas and opinions. So the modern perception of angels in the eyes of our culture today differs significantly from the understanding that those Old Testament Jews have. When we think of angels today in our society, we typically are not terrified by them. They seem to have lost their power, or at least their connection to God's judgment, his right to judge. We think of angels as cute and lovable. We think of angels as a nice kind of friendly force in the galaxy. We are often sentimental about them. They, they become little figurines that don't threaten us. When in reality, in the Old Testament, that would have been a completely foreign way to think of angels to the Old Testament believer. They are still mysterious to people. People don't really know much about angels and I think that's part of the reason why there's such an allure to them because people feel that they can just fill in the gaps with their own ideas about what might angels do, what may they not do. So people have their own kind of theology of angels that doesn't come from the Word but comes from imagination. They are still considered representatives of God but only in the loosest sense possible. They are rarely seen to reveal something about God but people who are transfixed on angels in our society tend to believe that these angels are more concerned about their lives and what's going on with them. Rather than hearing a message from God, these angels are more there to help them out with their own personal mission in life. They're considered helpful, 
but their aim and their abilities are quite ambiguous. You can kind of think of them any way you want to, according to our society today. So that popular view of angels is not based on any kind of reading of the scripture, and yet people today would still do well to hear the testimony of Hebrews and realize that angels aren't what they need. We don't need some guardian angel. We don't need some connection with an angel that's going to whisper in our ear. We need Jesus. That is what we need, and that is what we should worship. According to Scripture, angels are the Old Testament servants of God. An angelic interaction was a great gift from the Lord. It was a blessing for him to care enough for you to send an angel to tell your people what was going on. Because God could not be seen, these supernatural figures represented the most tangible personification of God at that point in history. And we, we've got to acknowledge here that their work was not unimportant. Turn to Hebrews 2 for a minute if you're not already close enough to see it. Though the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is greater than the angels, that doesn't mean that the angels are worthless or that they are somehow contemptible. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is that passage telling us? It's telling us that the message that was declared by angels has proved reliable. It was those angels that let the prophets know that Messiah was on the way. Those angels testified through the prophets to the coming of Jesus Christ. So God, without a doubt, uses angels for good purposes. And there's no question that while they were at times very impressive to those who interacted with them, that the people were also struggling in the way that they looked at angels as more important than they should. Let us begin to unpack the author's argument that Jesus is greater than any angel. God has made it clear that he is so by the things that he has said about Jesus. In other words, the writer of Hebrews does a very commendable thing here. In building this argument, he doesn't just use region or logic. He doesn't just tell you his opinion. But in order to prove to you that Jesus is greater than angels, what does he do? He goes again and again to the testimony of Scripture, which the Hebrew people acknowledged came from the Lord God himself. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The Old Covenant had revealed much truth about the angels. And in verses 5 through 14 of Hebrews 1, the author quotes seven different passages from the Old Testament that show from God's own word why we should hold Jesus in much higher esteem than the angels. When you're trying to understand something, observation and empirical evidence are very important. But even more persuasive should be the opinion of someone who is an indisputable expert in some field. 
So what I mean by that is if you start to have some symptoms and you go on WebMD and you look up all the information you can find on there and then you diagnose yourself and then you go to your doctor and you say, doctor, I think I have such and such disease. And the doctor says, well, actually, as I look at you right now, I'm, I'm pretty certain you do not. Whose opinion should matter more? The guy who spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get schooling for this or you who is a Google ninja and knows how to look things up on your computer, right? Should be the expert. We should trust those who know much. And so here, that holds true as well. No one knows more about either angels or Messiah than God himself who sends both. So our greatest source of reliable knowledge on the matter should come from God himself. The author goes first to Psalm 2.7 and then to 2 Samuel 7.14 to establish the first bit of evidence. God has spoken concerning the origins of each, of angels and of the Son. And the origin of Jesus is much greater than that of the angelic hosts. Angels, my friends, are created beings. They are similar to us in that regard. We are not sure entirely when God created the angels, but it would seem that they were made at some point prior to the creation of man and the world that we live in. Just as there was a time when mankind did not exist, so too did angels come into existence only when God chose to give them life. They are not ever-existing beings. On the other hand, Jesus is described as a begotten being. A begotten being is different than a created being. In all of Scripture, you're not going to find anything else that is described as having been begotten of God. That is only ascribed to Jesus Christ. While God is in some sense a father to all things because he is the creator of all things, the begotten status of Jesus Christ the Son is unique. Jesus proceeds from the Father. He has his origin in God, but he does so eternally. Jesus is not a created being. He was not spoken into existence, but is one and the same with the one who has begotten him. And so from the very beginning, God the Father has existed, and alongside of him, Jesus the Son proceeds from him, and the Holy Spirit is a part of that triune Godhood, Godhood, Godhead as well. Three in one, one God in three persons. And that cannot be said of any angels, or of any man, or of any other created thing. Jesus is a son in the sense that he and the Father are of the same substance. Remember what we read just a few minutes ago in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you see how different that is than an angel, which is a created being, which owes his existence to God speaking it into the world? Verse 6 continues to reference Old Testament passages, this time looking into Deuteronomy, and then again to the Psalms. Jesus is set apart from all the created things because he is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped by who? By all creation, including the angels. We see these words fulfilled in the birth and the coming of Jesus, don't we? As Jesus was being born in a stable, the heavenly host appeared to the shepherds at night and they proclaimed his greatness. In Luke 2, 13-14, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels are worshiping this Jesus who's been born in Bethlehem. They are giving him glory. 
Why would we magnify an angel above Jesus Christ, the one whom the angels magnify? The truth is also the source of one of the most beloved English songs of worship we have, the doxology. Remember this song? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Everything on the earth should praise the name of God and should reflect on the greatness of this Creator. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts, meaning that as well as those on earth, all created things in the heavens should give Him glory and should exalt His great name. And who are they praising? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So for these Hebrew believers to cast Jesus aside and go back to Jewish worship, to cast aside the better messenger and to return instead to a reverence of angels and that Old Testament message would be a downgrade of monumental proportions. I'm a, an A's fan. Most of you guys know that by now. I love baseball. And, and my A's team are kind of the, uh, the butt of the joke for most other baseball fans in the world. Our team is... Uh, a budget baseball club, if you will. We don't normally have the big-name stars. You're not going to see us going after any of the big free agents because, hey, we reside in Oakland, right? Many people call us the, the quadruple A of baseball, meaning that we are like the last step of the minor leagues. We develop the players, and once they get good and worth something, we trade them off for more younger players. It's somewhat fair for people to say that thing. But we've got a player right now, and his name is Matt Chapman. And dare I say, Matt Chapman has the potential to be a superstar. He's the best defensive third baseman in the league, maybe the best defender at all in the league, and he's got a really strong bat. So this guy's got the potential to be a Hall of Famer perhaps one day. And it would be kind of ridiculous if you were to go into the room of some 12-year-old kid who collects baseball cards and is a huge fan of the game and then see plastered all over the walls of his room huge life-size pictures of Scott Boris, Matt Chapman's agent right? Matt Chapman's got an agent. Every baseball player needs an agent. He brokers the contracts for Matt Chapman to make sure that Matt Chapman gets paid fairly. But nobody is putting posters of Scott Boris up in their rooms because he's not the one with the talent. Matt Chapman is the, t the one with the talent, right? He's the one you've got big pictures of on your wall. He's the one whose batting stance you're emulating. He's the one that people admire. And in the same way, it would make no sense for us to admire angels and to exalt angels in our lives when Jesus Christ is the one that we should be exalting. He's the one with the talent. He's the one who alone can save sinners like us. So the one we're praising and worshiping and adoring cannot be an angel or a prophet or a priest. It must be Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. While angels are important and while we should revere them, they are in no way eligible for worship like Jesus is. And this is a practical caution that we don't become angel-obsessed. Everything is good when it remains in its right place, but even a gift of God can become a hindrance to us if we try to make it into something that it is not. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 through 12 goes on to unfold this argument. Of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and the ministers and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And it also says, verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in this comparison here? Verse 7 through 12 continues to describe the roles that angels play. They're described here as in an honorable way, right? They're described as ministers of God, created to accomplish the will of their master. But notice how they're described. They're described like a tongue of fire. Angels represented only a momentary flickering testimony to the enduring greatness of God. Their contributions are temporary and limited. And the power of their usefulness comes and goes like the wind comes and goes. But in contrast to that, the better minister is Jesus. For he rules and endures forever. It is limitless in its scope and duration, the kind of ministry that Jesus possesses. His throne is described as an everlasting office. He will not be replaced. He is everything that we have been waiting for, and we will never need an upgrade from him. An upgrade does not exist. He is the best there is. And so his ministry in every way exceeds the ministry that the angels are called to minister. So be aware, Christian that it is the ongoing, diligent mission of our enemy to try to downgrade our view of Christ. The devil wants us to think less of him than we should think. If God declares that Jesus is greater, then Satan, God's enemy, is hell-bent on trying to deceive us into believing that anything in creation might be more worthy of our attention, our affection, our time, our faith than Jesus is. He does this with material things, doesn't he? He wants you to be so wrapped up in the stuff that you get through this journey, this pilgrimage to heaven, that you begin to think more about these things than you do about God. He wants you to become so confused about what the real blessing is that if God chooses to give you a blessing, a material thing, that you, by the way, don't really deserve because of your sin, and then he lets you have it for a time and then decides to take it away at some point, that the enemy would love it if you would turn to God and shake your fist at him in anger, wanting that thing back, not realizing that the greater gift is God's presence in your life. The enemy wants us to think that the enjoyable blessings of life are better than the one who gives the blessing. God has given you relationships. You might have a family. You might have a spouse. You might have kids. And those are all beautiful things that we should be very, very thankful for. But the enemy wants you to take it a step further. He wants you to become so wrapped up in the lives of your children that they determine what you do in life, not Jesus. He wants you to become so wrapped up in love for your spouse that you'll do whatever he or she says, even if it's opposed to the words that God has given to you. The enemy wants us to take things that are secondary, and he wants us to make them primary. And in this case, the enemy is trying to make the Hebrew believers think that angels are enough heavenly beings of an undeniable spiritual significance, but if Satan can make us think more of these lesser beings than we do of Christ, then he has succeeded in making a useful and beautiful thing a roadblock to pure fellowship and harmony with our Lord. If you were a builder, you've probably run across a certain substance called asbestos in some of your adventures with the hammer and the nail. 
Uh, asbestos is a certain type of chemical that was used for a twofold purpose. It was put into ceilings as an insulator and as a fire retardant. It was a safety measure. They built it into the, the, the roofs of, of houses so that if the house caught on fire, it would take more time for that structure to collapse and fall. Now, the problem is, this is a perfectly good material. It does its job well, it insulates well, and it prevents fire. But if you take that asbestos out of where it belongs and you were to put it into a pillow and sleep on it, you wouldn't have very many more sleepless nights because you wouldn't have very many more nights. It would poison you. You would get severe problems in your lungs and you would eventually die from asbestos poisoning. Sadly, many of you probably know somebody who worked in the trades who, before they realized they needed to protect themselves from this, was exposed to asbestos and was killed from it. It's not that asbestos is a bad thing inherently, it's that if it's used outside of its context, it can be damaging to us. Likewise, angels are not an enemy to us, they're not a danger to us necessarily, but if we begin to use them in ways that God never intends us to use them, if we begin to revere them or worship them or think that we can have angels and not need Jesus, then it has become to us like a poison instead of a blessing. God's word has more to say about Jesus' superiority to angels, so let's continue to move on here. Hebrews is going to next look at Psalms 103 and 110 for its content. In verses one, uh, three, 13 through 14 of chapter 1, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so in verse 13, everything in the kingdom has a role to play, and the role possessed by the angels is that of a ministering servant. But it cannot compare to the role that belongs to Jesus. Jesus plays the role of king. He is ruler over all. You see the superiority of Jesus to these angelic beings. The scope of Jesus' mission is far grander than theirs. How many of us are going to see an angel on this earth? Probably very, very few, if any. But how many of us might have had our personal lives impacted in a meaningful and transformational way by the power of Christ's atoning work? His work, the scope of what Jesus does, is far more um, far-spreading than anything that the angels hoped to do. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the na at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in the heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. You know who's included in that? Angels. Angels bow and worship Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. We've looked briefly at the beginning of chapter 2 already. So let's now turn our attention to verses 5 through 8 in Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This world to come, which we call heaven, the dwelling place forever for the saints, was not subjected to the angels. It is subjected to the greater one, to Jesus Christ. In other words, they don't rule heaven. Angels are not in charge. 
Jesus Christ is on the throne, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. Jesus has dominion over the heavens and over the earth. And that way we need to understand Jesus is not just the means to an end. He is not just an usher or a guide who takes us to the place where we want to be. He is much more than that. It is his own kingdom that Jesus personally brings us into. Angels cannot lay claim to that honor. He is not just a tool that gets us out of hell. Jesus is our heaven. When we are saved and washed clean of our sin, we have the the blessing and the honor of being near to this God who is immortal and invincible and knows all things. The hymn, of course, of verse 7 is referring to Jesus, and it's quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. And I think it was brilliant for the writer of Hebrews to quote this passage of Scripture because it's entirely feasible to see somebody who thinks highly of angels to go to that Old Testament Scripture and say, look, 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 the chosen one was going to be lower than the angels. Shouldn't we worship the angels? But he's not saying that Jesus became less than what the angels were. He's saying that Jesus was made lower in station, not in person or power. Jesus humbled himself to take on a human nature, but we still see his dominion over the angels in effect. In fact, in fact, in Matthew 26, verse 53, you might recall this passage where Jesus is on trial before he is crucified. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So even when Jesus was in his humbled state as a human being on earth, he had access and power and control over armies of these angelic beings. Jesus has always been greater than the angels, and he always will be. Everything has been put into subjection under his feet, including these messengers. There's nothing that's outside of his control. We continue to read in Hebrews 2, verse 8, second half, where it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. See, this section of scriptures is pointing out a very important point. Jesus did what the angels could not do for us. Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. Now that is different than an angel taking the appearance of a man. We see at various points in the Old Testament that an angel could appear to be like a man and could interact with men, but nowhere do we see that an angel took on a human nature. The scripture is very very plain that that God the Son took a human nature to himself and became in all ways a real person so that he might offer that body as a sacrifice for us. And so we see that he took on flesh and he suffered in our place, something that the angels could not do for us. 
They've never suffered for us like that. They were messengers of a high order, but they did not give that greatest love. What does Jesus tell us the greatest love is? In John 15, 13, no greater love as a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. Angels could not do that for us. As a man, as stated in verse 11, Christ could pay a man's debt by offering up his own spotless life in place of their sinful ones. In just a few moments, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. And so I want to just point out quickly that the elements that we use in this beautiful sacrament that the church has been participating in for so many years point to the realities of the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we partake of this bread, which is unleavened, meaning it doesn't have any yeast in it, that was symbolic of the fact that Jesus took on a physical body for us and that his physical body, unlike ours, was never tainted with sin, that it was pure and perfect. And so when we eat of this bread, we are remembering that God so loved us that he would send his son down to become one of us. And then we're going to be taking of the juice, and the juice is representative of the blood that flowed from Jesus when he gave his life as a sacrifice, when he died like a criminal, even though he was completely free of sin. He took our sin upon his shoulders and suffered in our place so that our sin might be washed away. And these elements remind us of that great gift that we can get nowhere else but in Jesus Christ and his work. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, Jesus didn't come to die for these angels. Angels don't bear the image of God. Jesus came to redeem human beings, the offspring of Abraham, to whom the first covenant promise was given, so that we might be redeemed and reflect the glory of God in our lives. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, we might, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means substitution. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Angels are not brothers to us. Jesus has become a brother to us by taking on flesh. And while the angels certainly battled spiritual forces in the heavenly places, and we know that they still do even today, Though there is no doubt that they have won important battles against these dark beings, it is Jesus alone who has the power to not only withstand, but to destroy the enemy. Verse 14. He has the power to destroy not only sin, but death itself. And the one who has control over both of those things, the devil. The destruction of the enemy coincides with the salvation of God's people. Jesus' destruction of the devil means that his people, the offspring of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, and those who have been grafted into true Israel by faith, may have assurance that their battle is completely finished. The enemy is as good as done. He's not been pushed back only to see him regain ground again. No, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are secure in him because he has destroyed the works of the enemy, something that the angels could not do. In Christ, 
Satan is defeated once and for all. Next week, we're going to return to this last passage that we just read because it also conveys to us this idea of Jesus as a new high priest, a better priest. In fact, we're going to learn that Jesus is better than any priest that ever came before him. But as we conclude today, let us remember the great gift that God gave to us in his Son, that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, that he was humbled to take on the form of a man, only to be exalted again in due time to his proper status and given dominion over all creation. So to conclude our service today, we're going to be celebrating the superiority of Jesus Christ through communion. This table that we are about to experience strengthens us as his followers. And there is a reason that this table does not point us to angels. There's a reason that it does not point us to prophets or highlight the work of the saints. It does not point us to Mary. It does not highlight the reformers. It points us to one place, to Jesus Christ. Jesus alone, because Jesus is greater. He is better in every way and superior to anyone or anything else that we might be drawn to.